So, well, good morning, everybody, and uh, glad to be here on this uh, lovely rainy day in Kingston. Um, so, get right to the matter here. In this uh, presentation, I'm looking at the training establishment of the early Royal Air Force, 1917 to 1925, focusing a little more on the wartime period because I know Ross is going to have lots to say about the interwar period later. So this period covers the transition from the Royal Flying Corps and the Royal Naval Air Service establishments to the unified RAF in 1918, the search for new missions in 1919, and the 1920 demobilization and eventual establishment of the new training regime in 1925. This is the convenient point to end the debate as this is the end of the RAF's childhood as it has been described by some historians. So here we just have the two pre-war, major pre-war uh, training areas, the Central Flying School up oven and then RNAS East Church. So, in 1917 and 1918, the Royal Flying Corps and Royal Naval Air Service grew in size and sophistication. During the wartime period, the training establishment was geared toward producing primarily pilots, observers, and technicians to meet wartime requirements. The Royal Flying Corps, Central Flying School at Upavon, and the RNS School at East Church were initially too small to cope with the expansion and attrition of the air services. In 1915, the air training organizations were increased by the integration of civilian schools to fill demand created by the war and by May 1915, there were in total 11 schools. Schools of military aeronautics were established at Reading and Oxford by December 1915, and the cadet wing of the RFC was founded at Denham. In 1916, with the air war accelerating, major shortcomings appeared. For example, there was no formal training for observers until 1917, and indeed, new pilots were expected to receive only 15 hours of flight training, and even this proved impossible to sustain, with the result that pilot lifespan was often measured in weeks. By 1917, the training establishment was composed of reserve squadrons and flying schools. This allowed for the creation of a specialist training brigade, and the schools were able to specialize further in areas such as air fighting, bomb dropping, night flying, amongst others. By 1917, schools were located at Farnsborough for photography, armoring, wireless, and Turnberry for pilot gunnery, Eyre and Eastburn for air fighting, New Romney, Marsk, and Yorkshire also for gunnery, and the Heights School specializing in the Lewis gun. Night flying training was conducted at Hunslow, and wireless specialization was done at Brooklands. To complement the schools in Britain, additional schools were established overseas in Egypt, the US, and Canada. Camp Borden, seen here, in Ontario, taught flying, wireless, gunnery, and photography, and produced 1,812 RFC pilots. This was out of the total of 3,135 pilots trained during the war in Canada. Other Canadian schools were at Hamilton for armament, Toronto for aeronautics, Long Branch for cadets, Beamsville for fighting, Leaside for artillery, and camps Mohawk and Rathburn also for flying. In Britain, recruits entered through the recruit camp at, recruit camp at Halton, then were sent to the cadet wing for pilot training for a two-month course. During this time, new pilots were given wide instruction in topography, gunnery, photography, observation, and so on. The training establishment was divided into three groups, with headquarters at York, London, and Salisbury, with Brigadier General Salmond in overall command. In June 1917, 5,841 pilots were being trained, with 4,650 of those expected to actually graduate. As we can see, this was an enormous brute force initiative. The idea was to train as many pilots as possible. Pilots generally received only 20 hours or less of solo flying. In August 1917, around the time of the second Smuts Report, the RFC Training Brigade was expanded into a division, and the third and fourth schools of military aeronautics were established at Denham and Bristol. In August, the Gosport School of Special Flying was established 
with Lieutenant Colonel Robert Smith Berry of Gosport System fame in charge. By November 1917, officers' technical schools had been established at St. Leonard's and Hastings, which provided graduates the ability to streamline into the cadet wings with the proper technical background. An equipment officer school of instruction was split from the Reading Flight School and located at Henley, and a bombing instructor school was opened at Langham Place in London. In October 1917, Smithberry standardized his training technique in the now famous General Methods of Teaching Scout Pilots Manual. Despite this expansion of the training establishment, at this point in the war, the hard-pressed RFC aviators were receiving only 17 and a half hours of instruction. This was changed in 1918 when Chief of the Air Staff Frederick Sykes required that pilots receive at least 50 hours of training. By the end of 1917, the Smuts Committee Report, at the behest of Prime Minister David Lloyd George, now put the RFC and RNAS under the same Air Ministry, with the RAF formed officially in April of 1918. The first Chief of the Air Staff was Hugh Trenchard, with Lord Ruthermere as Air Minister. Trenchard's first tenure as Chief of the Air Staff was short-lived, however, as he and Ruthermere couldn't agree on matters of acquisition and policy, which led to Trenchard's resignation on 19 March, amusingly before the RAF had actually formed, although this was delayed uh, till after April just to provide uh, morale. Ruthermere, however, was an opponent of Trenchard's successor, Frederick Seitz, and as a result, Ruthermere himself resigned on 25 April to be replaced by Lord Weir. From March to December 1918, the RAF required 1,293 pilots to be trained each month. Every month, 300 cadets entered the now six cadet wings. In June, Sykes moved the training department from the personnel branch of the RAF to his own office, hoping to directly improve the quality of training. In the summer of 1918, Sykes also participated in a training expansion committee and established a school of aerial photographic training. Sykes also eliminated the inadequate civilian schools and importantly created a six-week aerial tactics course that studied German tactics. These were critical changes considering that casualties for squadrons engaged in ground attack were on the order of 30% a day during the late 1917 battles. New observer schools were opened at Bath and Chellingham, artillery schools at Gosport and Worthydown, and navigation bombing schools at Stonehenge, Andover, and Thetford. Pilots now started in cadet battalions, received gunnery training and pilot training from the aeronautical schools, and then were assigned to their reserve training squadrons. Pilots went through two months in a cadet wing, two months with the School of Military Aeronautics, followed by one month in an elementary training squadron, then a further two months in a higher training squadron, and a final month in a post-graduation course. Training involved 50 hours of solo flying for a total course 11 months long. By November 1918, there were 199 reserve squadrons with 30,000 students. RAF total strength for November was 30,000 officers, 263,000 ranks with 23,000 aircraft. Losses during the last months of the war were still significant, however. The RAF on the Western Front lost 1,302 aircraft between 21 March and 29 April alone during the massive German Spring Offensive. At the beginning of the First World War, there were 40 students at the Central Flying School at Upoven. By November 1918, the RAF, RFC, and RNAS had trained 21,957 pilots. Now, just to give you some idea of the scale of this initiative, I've taken some pages from a Cross and Cockade article by Ray Sturdivant, which will show you the entire establishment of the RFC and RNAS. And so you can see each one of these represents a page. So squadrons on, uh, reserve training squadrons on the left, and then their location and little information about them. Going through here, you can also see Australian Flying Corps there, uh, the training depots, and then the actual uh, schools, specialist schools themselves here. 
and final RAF, uh, excuse me, RFC officer schools. So this was, this was an enormous establishment, suffice it to say. Now, after the war, Sykes, as chief of the air staff, was replaced by Trenchard, and the RAF was soon embroiled in a fight for its survival against such opponents as one-time supporter for Sea Lord David Beatty and Field Marshal Sir Henry Wilson, chief of the Imperial General Staff. By January 1919, Winston Churchill had moved from the Ministry of Munitions to become Minister for War and Air. The organization of the RAF at the start of 1919 included Mesopotamia, Egypt, and India, and allowed for 70,000 officers and men. 41,000 of those were stationed in Britain, 12,000 in France, and 5,000 in the Middle East and other theaters. In October 1919, the cabinet endorsed Lloyd George's August proposal for the 10-year rule, capping defense spending and beginning a major period of demobilization. In December, Churchill endorsed Trenchard's proposal, reducing the RAF to 30,000 men. Much of the drawdown came from disbanding former squadrons, in particular the Royal Naval Air Service squadrons, and included the demobilization of the women's RAF for a total of 23,000 officers, 21,000 cadets, and 227,000 ranks demobilized, including 5,000 women. After 18 months of peace, only 28 out of 185 former service squadrons remained. By March 1920, only 3,280 officers and 25,000 other ranks remained in the RAF. Now, meanwhile, Trenchard had been closely supervising the writing of the first volumes of the official history, providing the RAF with a historical foundation. Uh, volume one by Walter Raleigh was published after his death in 1922. However, the RAF itself does not actually appear until volume six, published by H.A. Jones in 1937. Now, with the RAF scaled down so significantly and the rivalry with the Navy over the fleet air arm gaining steam, Trenchard's objective was to ensure that the RAF survived in the future. Towards that end, he established a core training organization from which the RAF could be expanded when more resources became available. Searching for a mission to keep the RAF in existence, in January 1920, Trenchard sent the RAF into action in Somaliland as part of an imperial policing scheme devised by Colonial Secretary Lord Milner. By March, Trenchard presented Churchill with a proposal to use the RAF in Mesopotamia as well. Churchill, for his part, was well on his way to recreating his circus from the pre-war RNAS days with Trenchard in the place of Churchill's former RNAS chief, Murray Souter. Churchill was even eager to incorporate armored car operations into the Iraq scheme, much as he had done with his combined arms approach to the RNAS in 1914. In February 1921, Churchill was moved to the Colonial Office, and at the Cairo Conference of 1921, the RAF was officially made responsible for colonial policing missions, representing a major transition in RAF doctrine. Now, the Cranwell Cadet College was established in November 1919, raised to the status of a command in 1920, with Air Commodore Charles Longcroft presiding. Cranwell had formerly been the RNAS Central Depot and training establishment under the leadership of Commodore, later Fifth Sea Lord, Godfrey Payne. In 1921, the provisional syllabus for the RAF Cadet College at Cranwell was outlined, allowing for a two-year program. In 1923, Cranwell admitted excuse me, 30 students, uh, 30 cadets, with expectations that up to 120 would be required to maintain the RAF Officer Corps. At that time, the RAF pool of candidates was provided through Cranwell, a small number coming from the universities, and the rest from the short service commissions, which lasted five years and were the most popular choice. Candidates were selected based on their educational background, with priority going to those trained in engineering. After their two years of instruction at Cranwell, the new pilots spent five and a half years in squadrons, at which point they specialized in either engineering, signaling, one year at Flowerdown, photography at Farnborough, armament at East Church, 
navigation at Calshot, stores at Kidbrook, or staff duties at Andover. Engineering specialization was taught at the Royal Aircraft Establishment Farnborough, leading to a three-year course at Cambridge and a 10-month graduate course at Imperial College of the National Physical Laboratory. Short service candidates were sent to flying training school for a year where they received a broad education covering discipline, stores, pay, accounting, meteorology, navigation, and armament. New pilots received 10 hours of dual control flying and 50 hours solo, with 40 hours considered the absolute minimum. Now the staff, the RAF Staff College at Andover was opened in April 1922 with Air Commodore Robert Brooke Popham as the first commandant. The course in 1923 was one year long, increased to two years shortly afterwards. Staff officers also received training with Army and Navy Staff Colleges to inculcate the proper combined arms mentality. By 1925, when things had settled somewhat regarding the question of the RAF survival, the service was composed of 25 squadrons with capacity for 25 more to be formed, including a training reserve. University Air Squadrons, another of Trenchard's pet projects, were formed from undergraduate pupils at Cambridge, London, and Oxford. Now, meanwhile at Andover, Brooke Popham was lecturing on air strategy as early as July 1923 and continued through 1924. Brooke Popham compiled an enormous collection of material on the history of the RFC and RNAS during the war and produced studies on various, suspects, uh, various aspects of the air war, such as tactics of anti-submarine warfare and the effectiveness of strategic bombing, amongst many other subjects. At the Air Ministry itself, training duties were delegated to the Director of Training, who was under the Air Member for Personnel. The Director of Training was responsible for all questions of training, flying training, including reserves, long specialist courses, short courses, technical training of aircraft apprentices and airmen, and training, of, uh, training at RAF Cadet College Cranwell. So what does this story tell us? Well, during the war, the focus had been on fulfilling the demand for pilots and observers to fill and maintain the various squadrons in action. There were major limitations, and as Deputy Director of Personnel Group Captain Jalbert put it in 1923, throughout the war, training was defective both in quality and in quantity. After the war, the focus shifted to preparing the officers and traditions of leadership that would be required to establish the RAF as an independent service with its own unique history. The establishment of the RAF Staff College at Andover was a watershed in this regard. It's worth noting that in November 1926, it was recognized that the collective defense of the Commonwealth required that several countries of the empire also establish air forces with a common system of organization and training and the use of uniform manuals, patterns of arms, and equipment. Now, just a last slide. Part of the scheme to uh, provide the RAF with its own culture and heritage uh, including the uh, publication of the official histories was the formation of the uh, RAF pageants and displays uh, starting in 1920. These were uh, critiqued by opponents of the RAF uh, for having uh, required nine months out of the year uh, in terms of dedication to training, leaving the only remaining three for actual uh, wartime training. Uh, nevertheless, the RAF had indeed survived and through the RAF pageants and displays became an iconic symbol of the empire in the modern age. Thank you very much. Thank you.